just out of curiosity, because I wasn't looking at the screen, how many typos and mistakes were there on there? One bad one? Oh, jeez. Oh, <laughs> I, saw, I saw some faces of, of people change, and I thought, oh, man, there's a mistake in there somewhere. I missed a slide, too. I just, I, I type and put all those in more quickly than I probably should. I probably should spend a little bit more time making sure and double-checking. I, that's, that's how I am in school as well. I don't like to um, proofread my stuff. I like to just get it finished and get on with it. So uh, I need to take a lesson from that as well. So this message this morning is one that I actually spoke at... Uh, the the gathering on Sunday. So for anyone that came to that, you're hearing it twice, so sorry. Um, But it's, yeah, go ahead and just walk out, Michael. See you later. (laughs) It's one that I find extremely important. (laughs) I find it extremely important because I see that I see this message, I see, I see the letter to the church in Laodicea in Revelation. I see Laodicea as the American church. There is not a doubt in my mind that we are not the Laodicean church in some extent or another. And so, and you understand as we get into it, that I think that this message is extremely important. And Francis Chan uh, gave this a message very similar to this in 2014. So this isn't some, something that's just popped up in America, that's just popped up in the church today that came out of nowhere. This is an epidemic that has been spreading for very many years. And I think it's one that we really need to, to look at within ourselves as individual Christians, but then as a church as a whole. So before I get started and jump into the text, let's just open with a word of prayer first. Father God, as we study your word this morning, as we open your text, as we gather here in your presence, let your voice be heard. Let our minds be receptive to what you're saying. Let our hearts be willing to be changed and transformed and change the way that we act in this world. But more importantly, God, let us be able to focus on you and you alone. Let us be a representation of what you truly desire your church to be. God, as we study your word this morning, let this message be directly from you. Let your word be heard and move me aside. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. You know, there's this common saying in, in the world, but more notably in America, of picking yourself up by your bootstraps. And, and what that is implying is that you can bring yourself up from nothing. That without any help from anyone else, you can make your dreams come true. That you're able to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and go on through life and be successful in life and, and accomplish everything that you set your mind and heart to in life. You know, we have this, this picking yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. And, and this is something that 
is notable. It's honorable. It's something that we deem as, as worthy. Now, we can see this sort of mentality evident all the time. And, and you might think of times where you have picked yourself up from your bootstraps, that you have went out of your way to make sure that you were successful in life in whatever capacity that might be. I, when, when I was in college, you know, maybe you know, maybe you don't know, I, I played baseball at Johnson, and Johnson is not known for baseball. We're not known for any sports. We're not an athletic school. We lost all the time. So it was not always fun to be an athlete at Johnson. Now, part of going there, I, I didn't go to Johnson to play baseball, so I was aware that it wasn't going to be a good experience. But upon getting there, I realized that just how bad of a shape that program really was in and, and, and just some of the things that needed to be changed over time. And I remember I went out to the baseball field, one of the first practices, and I looked at the mound. And the mound was just kind of like a lump of dirt. <laughs> it was just like this little bump in the ground. And there was this giant hole where the rubber was, and there was a giant hole where you landed, and it just was in a really sorrowful state. And there wasn't really anyone on campus that had the expertise of fixing it. But my, my dad and I, and, and my brother, and, and, and the baseball program I had grown up in high school, we had basically redone our entire baseball field from scratch. And, and we had redone our, the pitching mound at that high school, and it was really, really nice. So I took it upon myself that this mound at Johnson was going to be immaculate, that we were going to make it really nice. And, and, and we got the money to invest in it, and we did the work. And I can remember for Saturdays, Saturday after Saturday after Saturday, I would be working on that mound, getting it in tip-top shape, and finally got it to where I wanted it to be, where I thought it needed to be. And, and then the season started in the spring. And I can remember... That season starting, and we would have jobs that we had to do after practice, after games, making sure that the field got cleaned up, that it got raked up, that, that the, the batting cage was put back together, and our coach would give us all tasks to do. And he gave a group of five of us the task of working on that mound. I didn't want anyone touching my mound. That was my mound. I built that mound. I fixed that mound. And so every time we were fixing that mound, they all stood around and watched me do it because I didn't want anyone touching my work. I had done all that myself. I had made sure that that had gotten in the shape that it was supposed to be. So that was my job. And, and they could just stay in there and watch me do it, but I wasn't going to let anyone mess up my work. And you know, we might see some flaws in that. There are definitely some flaws in that sort of mentality. That should not have been my mentality. But at the same time, we also a lot of times look at that mentality and see it as honorable. As someone that just, you know, they wanted to take control. They wanted to make sure that they did everything that was necessary to be done. That, that they were willing to go above and beyond. And, and so a lot of times in the workforce, in, in, in life in general... We celebrate self-sufficient people. We celebrate this picking yourself up by your bootstraps mentality, this mentality of going and getting your own. But that mentality is not one that is supposed to be had within the church. In fact, it's supposed to be the opposite. 
And we're going to be looking at two texts today that show us that. We're not supposed to have this self-sufficient bootstraps mentality. We're not supposed to have this mentality of, I'm going to make sure I succeed in this life. Turn to Revelation 3, 14. Now, the book of Revelation, as I've said before, it used to be this, to me, this scary book. This book where this is all the doom and gloom that's about to come in life. But in reality, it's a book of hope. It's a book of a promise. It's a book of God saying, I know, my people, you are struggling. I know there is sin. I know there is heartache. There is pain in this world. But this world is not eternal. And I'm coming. And every prophecy within Revelation is built on that premise. Now the thing is, in the first two chapters, or the chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, there's a prequel, essentially, to the rest of the letter, to all the prophecies. And John the Revelator is writing to these different churches, he's writing these little excerpt letters, saying, you know, this is what God says that you are. This is what God declares for you. This is where God wants you to go. What's, what he wants you to be. And he light, writes to these seven different churches, and there's different ways to interpret these. You can say that each letter is to a church of a different age, that each letter was to an exact church, that each letter is an, a, a, an ideal towards how different churches might act at different times. Regardless of how it's understood, the point remains that this revelation from John is written to God's people. And God's people, identified within these seven different churches, all have different dispositions in how they worship, how they behave, how they act as Christians. And God is calling them back to Him. And I don't think there is a letter to a church that has more harsh of a language than that of the church of Laodicea. And I think that the church of Laodicea reflects the church of America. He says in verse 14, Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea, say, Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation, I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy and need nothing, and you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now I know that there's some translations that take verse 16 that say, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And that, that's not, I don't think, the proper translation. Vomit is the right translation. That I am going to vomit, I'm going to expel, because I can't hold you down, God's saying. It's not just that I am making this this conscious decision that I'm going to spit you out. It's that, no, I can't have you within me, so I, am, I have to vomit you out. I have to release you from my presence. I have to get rid of you because you're neither hot nor cold, so you are getting away from me. So the question is, what is it that makes Laodicea neither hot nor cold? What is it that makes them lukewarm? And I would argue it's their self-sufficient nature. 
Because what we see here is in verse 17, he says, For you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, and need nothing. Now what we know about Laodicea is that in, in the year 17 AD, see, Laodicea, their city was built on in the Lycus Valley, and, and that valley is known for earthquakes. They would have earthquakes all the time. In 17 AD, there was an earthquake that practically destroyed the whole city. And so the emperor at that time, Tiberius, sent aid to Laodicea and basically rebuilt the entire city from scratch. And then in AD 60, there was another earthquake. The thing is... and. The, the whole city was destroyed in 60, but the thing is, between 17 and 60, Laodicea had abundantly prospered. They had a huge merchant class. They had their own banking system. They minted their own coins. They had a very wealthy trade system. They were self-sustainable. And so when, in AD 60, that earthquake happened, and the emperor at the time reached out and said, I'll give you aid, Laodicea said, no, we'll be fine. We'll take care of it ourselves. We can do this on our own. And like today, they were praised for that. The, the, the Roman state said, look at Laodicea. They're able to do this on their own. They're not calling for aid. They're, they're wealthy. They're prosperous. They're able to pick themselves up by their bootstraps. And they were celebrated for that. And what God is saying to the church of Laodicea is that sort of attitude in my midst is lukewarm. You can't come before me, Laodiceans, and say, I'll do this myself. Because if you come before me and say, I'll do this myself, I will vomit you out of my mouth. If you come before me and say, you know, thank you for giving us Christ. He's a great example. I, I'll start following his example and just, you know, go from there. I will vomit you out of my mouth. If you come before me and say, you know, I'll just make sure I'm here on Sundays. I'll sing the songs, I'll recite the words, I'll, I'll, I'll gather and I'll have all the potluck meals, but you know, that's enough for me. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. That's what God is saying to the church of Laodicea, is that self-sufficiency is not what the church is built on. And if we try to live in that way, as God's people, we are vomited out of his mouth. And that phrase, that, that word vomit, there's a popular metaphor in the Greek that is used to, to discuss a vomiting of words. So take, for example, when, when someone's nervous and they just start bumbling around, they start saying all sorts of random, uh, random things, a, a Greek-speaking person would use that word for vomit and they say they're vomiting out words. They're speaking mindlessly. They're just saying a bunch of words. Or if they're saying something unconsciously. They're just going through the motions. They're just you know, saying what is necessary to say, but not really meaning it from the heart. They're vomiting words. I think that's a really powerful metaphor, because how often is that the heart and attitude of the church? We're just vomiting words. Now let's gather on a Sunday morning. Let's, let's sing a couple songs. Let's listen to a couple prayers. Let's hear a message being read. Let's vomit out the motions. Let's, let's just get this over with so that we can get on with the rest of our day. Well, what God says about that, you vomit out 
your heart's intentions, you vomit out the words, I'm vomiting you from my presence. Because you can't dwell within my presence, within my eternity, and think that you can do this all on your own. Now the thing is, we have created the most prosperous civilization in human history. And I'm not dismissing America at all. The American dream has, cre has uplifted people from poverty. But part of that prosperity, in that American prosperity that has uplifted so many people in this world, we have allowed that prosperity to turn us into lukewarm believers. We've allowed the American prosperity, the American bootstrap movement of self-sufficiency to turn us into the church of Laodicea. I truly, wholly believe that. And if you don't believe that, then let me ask you something. Is $6 worth much to you? I would say no. Francis Chan, when he gave this sermon... He took $2, two $1 bills, wadded them up, and threw them out into the congregation. And everyone just dodged them. What in the world are you doing? If you do that in many parts, most of the rest of the world, there would be a dog pile to grab those dollar bills. You see, America has a wealth system that has... The average, or the, the, the average daily wage is $57.21 in America. That's including the richest and the poorest. And when you t average in the rest of the world, including America, the rest of the world's daily wage is $6.68. That's including America in that average. You take us out, it's a $4 to $2 average. $2 to $4 average. We have become so prosperous that we don't realize our prosperity. And I think we reflect this church in Laodicea. That we are wealthy and self-sufficient and we want to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps because that's what we've done for so long. And we don't even realize that our issues that we have, that our things that we think are the end of the world, the rest of the world wouldn't even begin to think that's an issue because they don't even have a semblance of the wealth to have that issue in the first place. And what's happened is we've allowed this prosperity to turn us into lukewarm believers. And so here's what Jesus says to the church of Laodicea that is lukewarm believers, which I would say we are as well in many ways. He says, I advise you, buy gold refined in the fire, buy gold from me refined in the fire so you might be rich. White clothes so you might be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed. Ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Those are powerful words. Like I said, Laodicea minted their own coins. They had their own wealth. And, and Jesus is saying, don't rely on your wealth. Buy wealth from me. Seek me for wealth. 
Don't rely on clothing and adorning yourselves. Rely on me to clothe and, and cover your nakedness. You are not sufficient. And by thinking that you are, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, if that language isn't strong enough, there's another passage in Luke 18 that I think expresses Jesus' language even more strongly and emphatically. Luke 18, 18 says, A roller asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Do not murder. Don't steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Well, I've kept all these from my youth, the man said. And when Jesus heard this, he told him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And after he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. And seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, in what we just said, in the statistic that we just cited, compared to the rest of the world, we're the rich young rulers. There's another statistic that says if you are the lowest class in America and have no debt to your name, you're still wealthier than 90% of the world. So when the world looks at us, they see the rich young ruler. So when we become, come before Christ, we come before him as the rich young ruler. And you might say, well, I don't have money. I don't have anything. I, I'm not the rich young ruler in this perspective. But, but you are. Objectively so, you are. And if we come before Christ and say, you know, I, I want to follow you. I, I, I've lived well. I've, I've done everything morally. I've done all of these things that you have asked me to do. But still, how willing are we to say, but I'll give up everything in this world for you? Because what Jesus is saying is, is the more you have here, the more you are tied to this life, the more that pulls you down here, the less able and willing you are to truly follow me. You can't be hot and zealous for Christ while being hot and zealous and desirous of the things of this world. It doesn't happen. The two don't go hand in hand. And what Jesus is saying Emphatically so, is that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a prosperous, wealthy person who has lived and accumulated much in this life to enter the kingdom of God. And when we, as the church in America, read those words, our hearts should sink. But I, I, I don't think they do. So often. And that's not me saying that we need to go out and, and just liquidate our savings and liquidate our retirement accounts. But I'm saying that there is got to be a change in attitude. 
That, that we can't live for this world and then also proclaim the kingdom of eternity. Because Jesus is saying you can't have both. You either follow me and have my eternal kingdom or you root yourself in the world and have this. And I would rather you root yourself in the world and so sell out for the world than try to have both. You try to have both, I'm vomiting out you out of my mouth. And, and so the question that we have to ask ourselves, the question that, that we need to address in order to see where our attitude is, is are we willing? Would we be willing to have nothing in this world, to live in utter depravity in this world? Because we're so focused on eternity that nothing else matters. If we had nothing, if, if China came today and said, we're collecting this debt that America owes us and you guys now live in squalor, would you be upset and scared and fearful? Or would you say, okay, that's fine. My wealth isn't here. I think that would be hard for a lot of us. In verse 20, Jesus says of Revelation, <clears throat> See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. When I was reading this the other day, I pictured... I don't know if any of you have ever watched those romantic comedy films. Um, I don't watch a lot of them. I try not to watch a lot of them. Isabella likes to watch them. But there's always, especially during Christmas time, there's always these films where the guy just, the, the, they're building this relationship up between the guy and the girl, and then the guy makes a mistake, and then it's Christmas, so it's snowing outside, and he runs to the girl's door, and he's pounding on that door, wanting to come in, wanting to be forgiven, He's standing there hoping that she'll open that door, let him in. Standing in the snow or the pouring rain. And I picture that here in this. That Jesus is standing outside in the pouring rain and the freezing elements. And he's knocking, pounding on the door. But so often we are so comfortable in our lives. We're so comfortable by the fire. We're so comfortable with all that we have accumulated, that all that we have, that we can't hear him knocking. That he is pounding on that door saying, let me in. I just want to be with you. I just, I want to dwell with you. I want to be with you for eternity. But here we are so comfortable in the here and now that we can't hear him knocking. What Jesus is saying is, I am standing here knocking. And if you hear me, if you hear my voice, if you open the door, I'm going to come in and I'm going to eat with you and I'm going to be with you. But you have to be the one that forsakes the comforts of this world. That says, they can take everything away here and I'll be fine because I'm eating with my Lord and Savior. He continues on in, in the passage in Luke. In verses 26 through 27. Those that heard this asked, then who can be saved? And Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. 
I find it funny how often that verse gets used for the exact opposite meaning of what that verse is. How often do we use that verse to say, you know, what's impossible with me is, impossible, is possible with God so that I can go out and I can become a billionaire. What's impossible with me is possible with God so I can make it to the NBA. What's impossible with me is possible with God so I can have the biggest house. How often do we use that verse for that meaning? And what Jesus is saying is what's impossible with man is possible with God. That even though you have accumulated wealth, it's possible to enter the kingdom of heaven because God has expressed his love so vehemously, so, so abundantly that it is possible for the wealthy that have attached and rooted themselves in this life to uproot themselves and follow him. It's the exact opposite of how we take that verse to mean. That verse isn't saying that I can do anything I want in this life and have this life because of Jesus. That verse is saying that I can give up this life and all that I've accumulated because of his love. And I can go to eternity and be with eternity and put my treasure in eternity instead. And even though that's hard for a wealthy and prosperous person to do, it's not impossible because of God. That's what that verse is saying. And Jesus is there knocking on the door, pounding on that door, begging us to hear. And it is possible for us to relinquish the comforts of this life and open the door so that we're with him for eternity. And he says, going back to Revelation, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. That when we are willing to say, and, and that idea of conquering that Jesus is presenting is completely contrary to the idea of conquering that we have. Our idea of conquering is going out and, and winning the business world. It's going out and, and, and beating everyone else and accumulating the most wealth. It's going out and making sure that our trophy chest has the most trophies in it. That's our idea of conquering. But Jesus is saying, no, the one who conquers this life, meaning the one who lives in this world and says, I'm willing to forsake this world, that's the person who conquers. Because that's the person who has placed their treasure in eternity rather than finite time. That's the person who sits with me forever and ever. And then going back to Luke one last time, it says, Peter said to Jesus, look, we have left what we had and followed you. And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left a house, wife or brothers and sisters, parents or children, because of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more at this time and eternal life and the age to come. So here's the ultimate question that we have to ask ourselves. What wealth are we going to choose? Because Jesus isn't denying the fact that there is a choice of wealth here. He says, I would rather you be cold. I would rather you choose wealth here than try to have both. 
He's not denying that choice. But he's saying you have to choose one or the other. And that doesn't mean that we just go through this life as poor beggars without shoes and, and no clothes. But it means what attitude are we having as we go through this life? You know, Isabella and I, we, we just bought a house and there's been a lot of renovation that's had to be done to it. And we've been doing the renovation and we've been, you know, spending a lot more money than we had maybe originally planned. And what I've noticed that in these last three weeks of renovating this house, of, of pouring all this time and energy and money into this house, I have vastly diminished in the time that I spent in the presence of God. And all the time and energy and focus I'm putting in to renovating this house in preparation for the son that we have that is coming, in preparation for, for her family and my family that is coming, in preparation for, for living in this life, all these noble things that we see, in preparation for all of that, I have not been spending time with the God of all creation, with the Lord who is knocking at my door. So to say that, well, we can have both, no. You can't have an attitude of desire for the world while simultaneously having an attitude of desire for eternity. They just don't coincide. So the question every single one of us has to ask, ask ourselves this morning is, what wealth are we going to choose? That choice is ours. But to have both is not a choice. To have both is to be vomited out of the mouth of God. So I encourage us to choose the wealth of eternity to choose the wealth of something that will neither rust nor fade, that's value will never diminish. And the way that you choose that is by participating in the death and resurrection of Christ and saying, I want that spirit to dwell within me. I want to give my life to him. And maybe you have given your life and now you're assessing, well, am I truly hot and on fire and zealous for God? Or am I trying to put my feet in both sides? Because that attitude, focusing on the kingdom rather than the world, is of paramount importance in being a follower and disciple of Christ. So I encourage, I implore each and every one of you, if you're not a believer, choose the wealth of eternity, the wealth that the Spirit of Christ provides. And if you are, church, we can't be Laodicea. Or else we'll just be vomited out of the mouth of God. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, you have given us eternity. You have given us a chance to dwell with you for all time. But God, we have this tendency, this human tendency, 
to repeatedly choose this world. God, change our attitudes and hearts. Help us to see the infinite value of your kingdom, of dwelling with you, and to choose that wealth over a wealth in the world that's diminishing and fading. And for anyone here this morning, God, that has not choose that wealth, place a burden on their heart to do so, to step into your spirit, to be filled with your love and with a life that is everlasting. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.